Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful, all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Amen. Dear fellow recipients of the gift of the Christ child, manufactured excitement is always tacky. I'm sure you've all seen it. Maybe at a concert, a party, a presentation. Hosts naturally want whatever they are in charge of, whatever they are presenting or hosting, to be special, memorable, exciting. The problem is that the event or the occasion itself has to provide the excitement and energy. Greatness can't be staged, faked, manufactured. If, for example, the party is dull, the band is bad, or the event is inconsequential, no amount of artificial excitement will be able to change that. In fact, it just seems to make things worse. Human beings have a hardwired ability to recognize both that which is truly important or exciting and that which most certainly is not. So it is on this morning that human beings need try to infuse no special excitement into this occasion. We need but be reminded of the event itself and what it is we are celebrating. The gift of our Savior King and the rescue and salvation that he represents will certainly carry the day all by itself. So it is that we turn then to an Old Testament foretelling of this event to gain a sense of what life was like prior to this event. And what I trust all of you will find is that nothing artificial or superficial needs to be added. The text that will form the basis for our Christmas Day meditation is found in the book of Isaiah, the 52nd chapter. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice, together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. This is God's word. Far from simple human words, what we have just read reveals to us the mystery of the ages, the gospel of our God, our Savior. We can and do trust these words with our very souls, that God would bless us on this Christmas morning through the study of his word, so we pray. Sanctify us by your truth, O Lord. Your word is truth. Amen. Scripture itself teaches us that there is a time for quiet introspection and preparation, and there is a time for pure celebration. 
This is indeed the time for the latter, to allow our enthusiasm, our joy, free reign, to celebrate the birth of our Savior and to revel in the good news that quite literally changed the world. Christ the Savior is born. Hallelujah. Our text for this Christmas morning makes clear to us that ours is not to be a silent, brooding, introspective religion. There is a time for such things, but the news that we have been given to know and to believe is just too good to keep to ourselves, just too good to celebrate in silence. In fact, our text is certainly advocating or promoting anything but silence when it says, the voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice, together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. This morning then we examine what it is that God has done to us and for us. Just what is it that would cause God himself to advocate such an energetic and joyful celebration by his people? So to begin to understand just what this event means to you, ask yourself first, what sort of news on this or any other day would naturally cause you to get excited? I mean, really excited, to the point that you would immediately want to share the news with family and friends. I suspect, unfortunately, that something like winning the lottery might come to mind for not a few of you. Or somehow coming into a substantial amount of money from an unexpected source. That would certainly, I suppose, do it for most. If you suddenly got a phone call, a registered letter that informed you that you were an instant multimillionaire, that would probably hike the old blood pressure and start the old cell phone fingers flying on the news, sending out that news to friends and family. So what if the news was even better than that? We're not even talking here yet about heaven, spiritual things. We're talking about spectacular news here on earth. So given the fact that money comes and goes, and that money very often just ruins lives, what if the news was something even more personal and substantial? Like maybe a genealogy search has revealed that you are the last living heir, not just to a couple of million dollars, but to the vast wealth and power of an entire country. Now, we're fantasizing here, so just go with it. The problem with this scenario, of course, is that we are Americans, and Americans don't tend to think much of royalty. In our system, the sky's the limit for every citizen as far as potential and advancement go. But that's actually a relatively new concept when held up to the light of history. Until rather recently, a man or a woman could never rise above the station into which he or she was born. Born to a poor, deprived family, you would forever remain poor and deprived. Your birth would determine what jobs you could hold, whom you could marry, where you could live, and in what kind of house, and so on. Denied, then, to you and your offspring would be the vast majority of all that this world has to offer. Now, I get it. 
We couldn't care less about discovering that we were royalty. That just doesn't do it for us. In fact, that's probably the last thing we would ever want. I'd be surprised if anyone that hears this would really want to get drafted to run an entire country somewhere. Yet this is where the landscape, the landscape rather, begins to shift from the secular to the spiritual, from fantasy to stark reality, and that shift changes everything. What if your only options are either royalty or utter poverty and deprivation, followed by death? You and I had exactly zero options before Jesus came into our lives. We were nothing in God's eyes. We were expendable and utterly forgettable because of our sin, because of our sin, our rebellion, our unbelief. Worse than that, we were damned, which means we had absolutely nothing to look forward to, not only in this life, but for all eternity. And then something truly remarkable happened. God himself dramatically altered our reality by sending his son into our world. The result was that God himself has made the incredible announcement that you and I are now, in the words of Scripture, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. I suspect that all of you have heard those words before, yet I wonder how many of us really heard them. That is, did you not only recognize the words, but actually apply them to yourself and to your own existence? Did you, in other words, Acknowledge both the reality and the implications of these words in your own standing and relationship to your God. So we take just a few minutes to do that this morning. Now, the tabloid interest in the latest British princess notwithstanding, the world's fanaticism regarding royalty has faded dramatically in the last hundred years or so. The American experiment, the idea that all men are created equal, has for the most part established a new mindset in the world. History, by the way, helped in the process, for history has taught us that bloodlines are no guarantee at all of ability. Royal blood in no way guarantees intelligence, sound judgment, or morality. In fact, history is full of royals who are both stupid and wicked. God's sense of royalty is different. Divine royalty is based not on bloodlines, but on adoption. And God the Father only adopts those who are virtuous and worthy. So do you feel virtuous and worthy? Do you feel that your conduct has made you worthy of God's adoption and the label of celestial royalty? Neither do I. Yet that is the declaration made by God himself in his inspired word. In fact, in understanding exactly how this declaration applies to and is appropriate for the likes of you and me represents the very heart of the gospel and of the event we celebrate on this day. 
The Word of God emphasizes over and over again that our virtue, our goodness, our righteousness is imputed. Now, that's a Bible word. It means simply that God declares it to be so. He credits it to our account, even though we haven't earned the right by our own actions. So then on what basis does God then confer this sort of divine royalty upon the likes of us? How or why would a holy, just, righteous God do something like that to four miserable, unworthy sinners like you and me? The key here is to acknowledge that the source of this virtue, this goodness, lies outside of ourselves. It all goes back to that royal birth that we celebrate on this day, the birth of our substitute Savior, Jesus Christ. When Jesus entered our world, when he took human nature into his divinity, he came as the King of King, kings and the Lord of all lords. Yet he did so in utter humility, giving up all of the benefits and trappings of royalty in the humble service of mankind. God the Father then, wonder of wonders, transferred all of the sin and corruption of mankind onto his own dear suffering son, punishing him for all that you and I had done wrong. The Bible describes it this way. God made him, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The result of God's transfer of our sins unto his son is that you and I have not only been cleansed of all of our filth and declared righteous by our God, the royalty of God's Son has been assigned also now to us. You and I are now part of God's royal priesthood. Now to all of this, the unbelieving world replies simply, well, that's nonsense. In fact, they hear such statements from Christians as utterly pathetic. Yet just as Jesus was rejected as the royal Son of God and Savior of the world during his time on earth, so also we should expect no less. The message then for God's children is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is both liberating and exalting. In sending his Son to be our Savior, God extended his hand of peace to every single human being. This was a message of the angels to the shepherds, the declaration that because God sent a substitute who would bear the penalty for all sin, a state of peace now exists between God and man. God's disposition toward us is now one of mercy and goodwill rather than enmity and wrath. In Jesus Christ, you and I have obtained mercy. Even more than that, in Jesus Christ, you and I have been made co-heirs of heaven and are now known as the royal children of God. In fact, God would, had, would have every single human being share in this great blessing which is exactly why he now calls upon every single one of us to share this gospel proclamation with as many as possible, beginning with our own friends and families, 
So then the time for quiet introspection has given way to the time for joyful celebration and sharing. God grant each of us the love and courage to give voice to this greatest of all good news. The King of Kings has been born and he has invited us all into his royal family. Amen.